Hello and welcome to the next in my series of studies in John's Gospel. In fact, this is one of the last ones that I'm going to do from the church. We'll do a few more from time to time from the church, but I'm not going to do one every um, Sunday morning at nine o'clock. So there'll be a bit less uh, ones, just me on my own in the church and a few more me talking in front of a congregation. But anyway, what can I do for you? I don't know whether you're familiar with one of my favourite songs. I'm not going to sing it for you, but I'm going to read you some of the words. This is a Bob Dylan song. Uh, it's an absolutely brilliant song. Google it. Um, unless, of course, you don't like Bob Dylan, in which case, well, I don't, know what you, I don't know how you live your life. But anyway, here we go. This is a Bob Dylan song. It says, you've given everything to me. What can I do for you? You've given me eyes to see. What can I do for you? Pulled me out of bondage and you made me renewed inside. Filled up a hunger that has always been denied. Open up a door no man can shut. And you've opened it up so wide. And you've chosen me to be among the few. What can I do for you? You have laid down your life for me. What can I do for you? You've explained every mystery. What can I do for you? I came across this song when I was a teenager as a, a young Christian and it really has resonated throughout my life and become a prayer for me. What can I do for you, Jesus? What would you have me do? And I realised that that is a question that sometimes we don't ask and our culture and sometimes the religious media on social media, on the internet, or whatever, is trying to get us to ask a different question. And the different question is, Jesus, what can you do for me? And that's a fundamental shift, whether our lives are built around saying, God, what can I do for you, eh, Bonnie? Or what can uh, you do for me? These are a fundamental shift in our thinking. So we're in John's gospel. We've been talking about John, uh, Jesus rather. John has been telling us that Jesus is about to leave. Uh, he's about to be arrested. He's about to be beaten. He's about to be um, crucified. He's about to leave the disciples. And he's telling them that though he is going, he will be sending another one the same as him, the Spirit, the Advocate. And we've talked about that how the Father and the Son and the Spirit come to make a home within the, the hearts of a believer. In our last talk, which we did in church, I talked about where Jesus says, look, I'm leaving, but my peace, I leave you. And I ask three questions which you can find if you look in our, our last study. And that takes us into John uh, 14, verse 28. You heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Just a reminder that when John, and he uses the phrase greater a lot, that when he uses that phrase, he means more than. He doesn't mean better. He isn't saying that the Father is better than Jesus, or even saying that the Father is more powerful than Jesus. He is saying that the Father is bigger than Jesus. He's bigger because it's the God of the universe, and Jesus is the God contained in a human body, within flesh and blood, within, I don't know, five foot ten, six foot, four foot eight. I don't know how big we imagine Jesus to be. But God the Father is greater in that he expands throughout the universe. He's not 
better. He's not more powerful, but he is more than the God in human form. And uh, Jesus is returning to the Father. He's returning to the grand God of the universe. He's returning from a place of containment within a human body and returning to the expanse of God. But we get before that this phrase, if you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father. Now, why would they be glad if, if they loved Jesus? Because the life on earth of the containment in this human body and the, the ridicule and the criticism and the rejection that he's been experiencing, and more importantly, the pain that he's about to receive. If they love Jesus, they won't want that to last forever. They will want that to end. They will want Jesus to return to the place of joy and of peace where there is no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain. If you loved me, they we would be wanting Jesus to do what is best for Jesus. And if we love Jesus, we are saying, what can I do for you rather than what can you do for me? For we have been created to love. We have been created and made and shaped to be at our best, to be the most fulfilled and the most at peace when we are giving, when we are loving others, not when we are saying, do this for me. I was listening to a podcast recently where a couple of uh, folks were talking about what they understood happiness to be. And these were experts, experts in happiness. And they concluded that happiness comes when we seek to love someone else rather than ourselves. We are created to be givers, not receivers. We are created to be joining in with what God is doing rather than trying to get God to do everything for us. When we reduce God to our personal genie in the bottle who will answer our prayers as we want and do what we want the moment we want him to do it, we actually become dehumanized because that's not how we're created. And actually we don't love or feel love in the same way. But actually, when we come to God and say, I just want to serve you, I just want to live my life for you, what would you have me do today? Who would you have me bless? Who would you have me encourage? Who would you have me share your word with, your love with, your care with, your wisdom with? Who would you have me um, be your hands and feet and mouth to? When we live that life of saying, what can I do for you today, God? It's a much more fulfilling life than, God, will you make my life easy? Will you sort this situation out for me? Will you do what I want? Will you help me fulfill my agenda? Far better to come to God and say, uh, what is your agenda for me? He says, though, that he's telling them that he's going to go before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. Why is he saying this? He's saying, look, I'm going to leave. I'm going to die. You should be glad for me that this is the end of my earthly ministry and I'm going on back to a better place. But I want you to know that the, 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 the passion that's about to happen, the, the, the rejection of Jesus by mankind, that is predicted and foreseen by God. There is going to be difficulty before joy. And what he's saying is, I don't want you to have a false expectation of what it means to follow me, where you think, how on earth, where are you, God? We expected you to do everything we wanted, and we didn't want Jesus to die, and we didn't want Jesus to leave us, and we didn't want Jesus to be ridiculed and the crown of thorns put upon his head. So, God, maybe you don't exist because you didn't do what we wanted. 
But he's saying to them, Look, you need to know I will be leaving you and I will be rejected by man and I will suffer and I will die. That the, the, the joy that is before me comes after the difficulty. And too often we lose a sense of faith in God because we expect God to do what we want for us and it for it to be easy. And we are di- uh, living under an illusion. Lots of you will know that I, I quote one of the few sermons I remember. Many, many years ago, I heard a sermon on John the Baptist. And the phrase was that disillusionment comes when you begin with an illusion. And John the Baptist was under no illusion that he would suffer and be executed. But some of his disciples were disillusioned because they had an illusion that the Messiah would come and bring about a, a, a immediate defeat of the Romans and immediate victory. And John the Baptist was going to end up beheaded. Disillusionment comes when we begin with an illusion. If we have an illusion that following Jesus is him making our lives perfect, we will be disillusioned. And by perfection, I don't mean morally, I just mean there's no problems and everything's easy. And actually to follow Jesus with... uh, encouraged to take up our cross. Paul talks in Philippians about sharing in his sufferings. To follow Jesus means there will be difficulty, opposition, persecution, spiritual conflict before the joy that awaits us. It is in heaven that every tear is wiped away, not on earth. It is in heaven that there is no more sadness, not on earth. And Jesus says, I want you to know this so that when it happens, you still believe. When it happens that Jesus is rejected, we still believe because that was always the likelihood. It was always the purpose and the plan. He says, I will not say much more to you for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me. John 14, 30. Satan is coming. What is he coming to do? Is he coming to take over from Jesus? Well, perhaps in a small part. But it seems that he really might be, uh, in this instance, he's referring to him coming to harm Jesus, coming to cause mankind to reject Jesus, coming to cause the suffering uh, of the cross. And uh, we talked a, 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 a lot about this in a study that I'll, sh- I'll remind you of in a moment. But it is, it, 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 he says that he, Jesus says he has no hold of me. So although Satan is going to cause the suffering of the next few hours, it's in a sense Jesus allowing it, permitting it. He it says uh, he has no hold over me. He cannot do this other than I am allowing him to do it. So the cross isn't the defeat of Jesus. It is him allowing Satan to do something for a greater purpose. He has no hold. The prince of the world is coming, but he has no hold over me. And for a a sort of more detailed look at the role of Satan as, as the prince of the world, if you go back a few studies and Google who rules the world, surprising answer. I looked at where... Jesus first introduces the idea of Satan as being the prince of this world, the ruler of this world. Paul tells us our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the ruler of this world. That there is a a satanic and demonic power that is opposing us. And uh, Jesus concludes, he comes to the world so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father's commanded me. So this onslaught from Satan against Jesus 
is something that Jesus is allowing. He wrestles with it in Gethsemane and says, not my will, but yours. And so the purpose is that we all understand that Jesus gave himself freely to something painful and difficult because he loves the Father. He loves God. He wants to set mankind free. It was always God's intention and purpose to come and redeem mankind. And Jesus, the human being, is showing us that he is God and that he is submitting to the will of the one who sent him. And it may be that we would perhaps ask ourselves similar questions. Are we saying to God, what can I do for you? And are we willing to submit to that which we know is difficult for the joy that is set before us, for what is to come later. Are we willing to pay the price and take up our cross and follow Jesus? So three questions for us to reflect on. Are we more driven about how to love Jesus or to be loved by him? Are we driven to love Jesus or to be loved by him? What is it that is pushing us forward? Is it that we just want to say, Lord, what can I do for you? Or are we saying, Lord, what will you do for me? Because if our question is, Lord, what will you do for me? We will get disillusioned. And we will question where God is and why he isn't answering our prayers. So our prayers are in the name of Jesus because we're asking that which Jesus asked because we're asking to do that which Jesus would have us do. Then we may be battered and bruised as we talked about in our last study. We may find it difficult but we will have a peace that passes all understanding. And the second question is, where might our expectations or our assumptions not take into account the spiritual battles we face? Where is it that perhaps we buy into the world's uh, lie that everything should be easy and that we are entitled to a straightforward life? And lastly, how obedient are we prepared to be to Jesus? Say, Lord, here I am. What can I do for you? What criticism, what rejection, what misunderstanding, what tiredness, what financial loss am I prepared to do for you? For you have done everything for me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the God who has loved us and come among us and that the suffering that you experienced was not a surprise but part of your willingness to die for us. And Lord, we want to have the same attitude of Christ. We want to have the same attitude of saying, what can we do for you? Help us to focus on you and serving you and the needs and brokenness of this world that we may be your instruments of hope and redemption and grace. Strengthen us when it's difficult. Guide us when we're perplexed. Restore us when we fail. Lord, we say to you, what can I do for you? Amen.